Have you ever walked past a dumpster and been like, yo, I wonder what's in that dumpster? I can put on these glasses. Let's start eating that trash can. <laughs> he slit his throat with a dull knife in an unsuccessful attempt to commit suicide. Refusing medical attention, he asked to speak to reporters. He creates stuff. He is responsible. He is the prime minister. He's responsible for all You're listening to the True Crime Dumpster podcast with hosts Amy and Kevin. I'm Kevin. <laughs> and it's another quarantine edition of our podcast with episode number 24. 24. 24. And I'm drinking red wine again. Happy Earth Day. Hey, thanks. So this week I took in another dog. She did. It's my quarantine lost dog I didn't. edition I'm not of, a part of my life. Yeah, well, no, you are. <laughs> so if you hear any growls, there's two chihuahuas behind us <laughs> that are probably fighting for space or fighting for love or something. But they're really cute and funny together. So, meh. It gives me something extra to do in case I don't have enough to do. Three dogs is just not enough. Yep, so we have four right now. So the two bigger dogs have been kind of ousted out of a lot of things, and the two little dogs have kind of taken over the house <laughs> and our bed. So, yeah, that's that's what's going on this week. That's our quarantine life. Yep. So we hope you are all staying safe and doing well. I think we're going to be in this for quite some time. I know Governor Newsom just said that he wanted to extend, at least in California, the stay healthy at home order until May 15th now. So no changes in anything happening basically until May 15th. That's almost a month from now, right? I know. It's yeah, today it's the, this stupid. episode this episode is coming out on April 22nd, but we're recording on April 21st. So, oh yeah, and then on Monday it was the that was yesterday. Yeah. Well, it was 420, brah. Yeah. Happy 421, dudes. <laughs> so on 420, as a lot of you guys know, it was the 21st anniversary of the Columbine shooting. I actually just started listening to another podcast recently called Killer Queens. I didn't think I was going to like them, but I do like them. However, I only listen. There are certain stories I just can't hear anymore. And I just skip those. So I really just kind of picking and choosing because I can only listen to so many different, you know, so many podcasts about a certain topic or case. So I'm skipping quite a few, but I, they do a really good job. They did the Columbine shootings in, was it Littleton, Colorado, I think? I believe so. Yeah. So, yeah, it's been 21 years since that happened. And then no one has done it in a little while, but I know the last podcast on the left does a really good job of the Oklahoma City bombing. <laughs> they didn't do a good job of it, but you know they they covered Covering it. it. They covered it yeah, pretty yeah. well. So that was the 25th anniversary on Sunday. So anniversary is a weird word for that. I guess it's just remembrance, the 25th mem remembrance of that event. That shit's fucking crazy. That's probably one of the craziest kind of stories Inside I've job. ever heard. No, but very strange. Timothy McVeigh, the dude who did who the male bomber, uh, Unabomber. Kaczynski. Kaczynski. Timothy McVeigh, Theodore Kaczynski, Richard Chase, and there's a couple other people. I just feel incredibly bad for them because A, well, I don't think it I think it's a combination of many things. I think one, they were misled. 
two, they're mentally ill and untreated. And just needed to have some blood. No, it just, they didn't get the attention that they needed. And I'm not, they weren't attention seekers necessarily either, you know. They got bad attention. Like, I will say Timothy McVeigh. Kaczynski, I could see definitely some fucking weird, you know, government shit because he definitely was a, what was that chemical? M6, not M16. Um, you know what I'm you talking about. MK Ultra. Yeah. It's not a chemical. Well, experiments. Well, I mean, LSD yeah, is a, is a Well, yeah, it's, it's a brainwashing technique. Yeah. Yeah. Theodore Kaczynski was very much a victim of shit. There's drugs involved. And there's yes. definitely MK Ultra possibilities there timothy mcveigh was very much of the theodore kaczynski school of education unfortunately and bad people got a hold of timothy mcveigh unfortunately kaczynski is right about his every like have you read his shit kevin he's fucking nuts what he was saying was gonna happen in the future is coming true okay he's not nostradamus all right (laughs) (laughs) but like what but he, he is. He's, he's a Luddite who hated everything and was ready for the world to fall apart. And, you know, anybody who's ever predicted Amen, that, anybody who's ever predicted that is right. Well, see. Because <laughs> the world falls apart every year. If it's not, if it's not COVID-19, it's an economic crash. If it's not an economic crash, it's some horrible natural disaster if it's not some horrible natural disaster it's some man-made disaster like oil in the pacific i'm just saying that like we're covid19 if it's if it's not i already said that if it's not one thing it's another the world's always ending to some degree you know what i mean true i'm I'm just saying that there's always something that you could kind of point to as being see that was when i think there's a lot of things happening right now yes it's just we're more aware of it I think they're pretty big things happening right now. Do you want to talk about it? No. This is your platform, <laughs> Kevin. <laughs> no. We just have to give you a little bit of banter at the beginning because we're going a little stir crazy here. So, and we have lots of thoughts. She hasn't talked to anyone for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I yeah, I haven't because of like being in Google Classroom. Yeah. The only talk I have was like with the three students that turn in work. <laughs> the whole episode just says all work and no play makes Johnny a dull boy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. So, on April 22nd, 1970, so exactly 50 years ago, on the day that this is coming out, over 20 million people took to the streets over the lack of regulation on corporations' pollution. Since then, Earth Day has been an annual chance to motivate citizens and do something good for the planet. I don't know if anybody's going to do anything tomorrow. It's probably illegal to do anything good for the planet tomorrow. You know what you can do for the planet tomorrow? Don't drive. Stop breathing. (laughs) I mean, honestly, what we're doing right now is the best thing ever for the planet. Pollution is down. Seeing some of those maps with like the pollutions, like water and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Like Los Angeles, people are like, whoa, there's a sky. You know, (laughs) they they didn't even know. There's mountains right there. The protests and the movement that were part of this led to the creation that year of the EPA. So the same year that I always actually thought that the blue marble, do you know what I'm talking about? The the view of the Earth from space. Is it from NASA? It might be from NASA. Do you want to talk about NASA? We can. No. When the first space shuttle went to the moon and they did... I don't see. I'm terrible with history. I don't. Was it the first space shuttle? Or, <laughs> I don't think that it wasn't a space shuttle. Spaceship. Well, yeah, it was like the Apollo. So it took. It basically looked back and took a picture of the world. Right. And from that, the moon. From well, while they were in, in the, flight okay, yeah. or in orbit or whatever so you want to call it. That's the blue it. marble. That's the blue marble. It's a really, really beautiful image. That yeah. actually happened in 1972. The NASA I always, artists are really good. Oh my god. <laughs> Because they, they really got the roundness, even though it's flat and hollow, right? Well, yeah, it's a distortion that you see out of the window, but yeah. Oh, my God. It's a flat plane. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. It makes me <laughs> want to not know you anymore. We're I always thought that that was the creation of, like, the EPA and, like, the Earth Day and all that stuff, is that it's the first time that the world, you know, global citizens have seen the Earth be this vulnerable little thing 
that is very small in the vastness of space. Like all of a sudden it kind of made us understand that it's not just us in this galaxy, you know, but I was wrong. I think on um, the 29th, we'll get another reminder because we're supposed to get hit by a comet or an asteroid or some shit. (laughs) We're bad at space jargon. Let's stop that. (laughs) Comet, asteroid, NASA, whatever. So in the 70s, people started to give a shit about the Earth. And and we'll kind of set up some of the kind of political historical context of the 70s. But nonetheless, on April 22nd, 1970, that's when the first Earth Day happened. And that same year was the year that the EPA started. President Bill Clinton later awarded a Presidential Medal of Freedom to environmentalist and U.S. Senator Gaylord Nelson for leading the charge in founding Earth Day. So Gaylord Nelson. He found Earth Day? He found it. Where did he find it? I think in Santa Barbara. That's what... Jamie will have you believe that he created Earth Day. Just like how Al Gore started the internet, Jamie thinks he started. I don't know. He's always saying something. He's always getting on his high horse about Earth Day. He was five months old when Earth Day Day was created. He's very motivated. And he cares a lot about He was actually alive for the first Earth Day. But I know that this the the day is very significant for him in a lot of ways, you know, creating it and all. But he actually gave me the idea. I saw him like prattling off in the comments of somebody's something rather about Earth Day being today. And I was like, oh, shit, that's right. Because there has been this like misconception about who was the founder of Earth Day. And I thought we'll it was talk about that. Oh, really? No. OK. He was an environmentalist, though. Clearly. <laughs> yeah. He just wanted to get rid of humans. It just the targeted group of people was not so good. So often people think that Ira Einhorn had something to do with the creation of Earth Day because of an iconic picture taken at a rally on that day in April of 1970. So if you Google a picture of Earth Day 1970, a lot of times this picture comes up. It's like Harry from Harry and the Hendersons is throwing up the peace sign in front of all these people. Yes, that's what it looks like. But I'm saying like it's such an iconic image and a lot of people don't even know the name or whatever. But what they do know is that this guy is somehow equated to Earth Day because he was at a rally for Earth Day in Philadelphia. He just wasn't the creator of it. So we're going to go into that a little bit more. In the 1960s and early 70s, Ira Einhorn was known as an academic expert on the counterculture movement. While teaching at his alma mater, mm-hmm. alma mater, alma mater, the University of Pennsylvania, um, where he went to school. Good job. Fuck yeah. That's Latin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look at me. He quote once reportedly broke out the joints, stripped naked, and danced in the classroom. He was Philadelphia's most outspoken hippie, but conventional types liked this unconventional hippie. Two organizers of Philadelphia's Earth Day celebration, Edward W. Furia and Austin S. Leibrock, not to be confused with Leibach, <laughs> wrote to Time magazine explaining no matter what else Ira may have done or said, he was not the founder of Earth Day. And there was no meaningful link between Earth Day and this convicted murderer. Have we got to that part yet? No, but it's okay. I mean, it is a true crime podcast. Spoiler alert. True crime podcast. Spoiler alert. There's going to be some crime. Quote, he was not even a member of the committee of 33 men and women who did organize the event. So he also said that the photo that they ran was taken during a one hour period. Like Amy was just saying that Ira literally occupied the podium, refusing to get off the stage Mm -hmm. and delaying Senator Edmund Musky, that's a good name. His key Musky Musky. Okay. His keynote speech. So it was an unsuccessful attempt, at least at the time, to seize fifteen minutes of fame. It didn't seem very unsuccessful to me because he's the one that people think of when they think of Earth Day. So. I know that Unsuc- un- unsuccessful for them. Un unsuccessful. <laughs> so in order to understand the story, it's an. Imp- It's important to understand why a pretentious, fat, 
smelly loser with long hair is such a big deal in a historical context. And not just like in a metal band, <laughs> although it looks like he could be. So at this time, there's violent protests against the Vietnam War going on. The Cold War is a little bit after that, but... It's, it's before and after that. It's from like 1960, 1990. Well, I guess, yeah, since the World War II, Cold War, yeah. shit with Russia was always... Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there Thanks, was just... CIA. There was just a lot of, like, war and talk of war. So, of course, there's always... Whenever there's war, there's going to be protesters. So, again, that kind of goes to that, like, counterculture movement of, like, anti-war, anti-fascist, yeah. anti-government, you know, military spending. So there was massive inflation worldwide going around, which is about to happen right now. Much of it caused by, hey, an oil crisis. Weird how history repeats itself. So that happened in the Middle East, of course. And the first time digital technology is seen in consumer products, including the first calculator. And as technology advanced, the range and function of home appliances improved. So so there's like layoffs, I'm sure, happening. Yeah. And, and also being people being freaked out about the future. So, yeah, it was just a transformational kind of time, kind of like what we're going through now with this whole COVID thing. I don't think the world that we knew is ever going to be the same after all this shit. I mean, it's not like by accident. This all shit. This is all planned. What's all planned? Like, no, I don't think that this the, is planned. The, the control aspects. I'm not saying the virus, but how? Like, they they've had. I think I think that it doesn't matter if it's a war. It doesn't matter if it's disease. It doesn't matter if it's economic collapse. It doesn't matter if it's a natural disaster, an unnatural disaster, or what. The government has to, unfortunately, take control because that's who we have allegedly elected to office to take care of our shit. Because if it was each up to us individually, it would be fucking mass hysteria and panic and chaos. We actually need a government to tell us what to do, unfortunately, because there's just too many of us. Well, I just feel like they're (laughs) butt fucking us pretty hard right now. Okay. Well, stop bending over. (laughs) Anyways, coming back to our story. So being well-educated and charismatic, Iroh's perfectly situated within the counterculture movement. People described him as having a magnetic personality, despite him being ridiculously stinky. (laughs) Oddly enough, his body was actually clean, but his clothes were fucking disgusting. Yeah, that was in the documentary that we watched, that Mugshots documentary. His friend was saying that, like, he actually was very clean, but he put on, he called it a mantle of, like, disgustingness. But he almost makes it seem like it is a little bit of a costume that he puts on. That he actually likes being clean, but he also wants to be known as, like, kind of the dirty hippie so he can connect with his, like, constituents, you know? Yeah, totally. But everywhere else... Like, all, all articles, they're like, he never bathed, he didn't use deodorant, he was disgusting. But I, I actually trust the documentary that we watched the most because those were his friends that he hung out with all the time. And they're like, dude, he was super clean. He was a total ladies' man. Like, he wanted to be clean so he could fuck chicks, basically. You know what I mean? Reminds and I, me I, of that I believe David that Cross more. Joke. Yeah, yeah. Fucking a pile of trash. That's the one. Yeah. <laughs> So his professorly position, sway with young hippies, and ability to hold his own in an intellectual discussion, he was an ideal liaison slash tool for corporations and large companies like AT&T to help them understand this new group of consumers that they didn't understand. And that's like the counterculture hippies. They were this huge group of people in the United States that they knew nothing about. And so... This kind of hippie guru leader of these fucking counterculture kids, basically, are their new consumers. And so people like the president of AT&T, the CEO of this corporation, the president of that corporation, they kind of like turn to him to be. How do we market to these fucking. Yeah. Like basically like how do we talk to these weird kids that we don't know anything about? Because. Remember, marketing, marketing, marketing. They're they're used to kind of like the yuppies of like the 60s and businessmen and stuff. And all of a sudden there's this new kind of base of consumers they don't understand. So these companies paid his rent, 
his utilities, and whatever else he needed. Iroh is also friends with other 70s celebs like Grateful Dead's Jerry Garcia what? and radical activist Abby Hoffman. He also had an unsuccessful run for mayor in 1971. Yeah, so he was a really big deal in Philadelphia. He was very well off. I mean, he worked at a credible university. He had really high ratings among his students. He had powerful friends in high places. And he was very well situated where he really was in this kind of limbo between being a hippie and being like a CEO almost. I think he was a fake hippie. Oh, he was a total fake hippie. And that's where I think the guy in the documentary, he was kind of accusing him of, you know, being actually really clean. (laughs) Yeah. He said he was actually really clean, but he would put this costume on so he could like, you know, be on the same level as the kids. And, And it worked. Enough of him. Let's introduce another better person, Holly Maddox. She was from Tyler, Texas and was the oldest of five. She was her class's salutatorian. She was. What does that mean? A salutatorian is almost like a valedictorian. I think it's the person who has like the next highest GPA and wants to speak. I think that a salutatorian is a really general term. It means somebody who speaks at their graduation. Hmm. Yeah. A speaker. Yeah. It's a speakatorian. But it also it's also speakatorian. It's also someone with an extremely high GPA though. They you wouldn't be asked to be a salutatorian unless you had a high GPA. They wouldn't be asking me. No, they would not. Anyways, well, no one's asking anyone because there will be no graduations this year. Yep. Stay away. Six feet. Well, not more than that. No gatherings, period. Oh, yeah. They they couldn't even have a commencement even if everybody stayed away six feet from each other, you know? Well, school's out forever. I know. She was beautiful, talented, a dancer, a cheerleader, and she was voted most likely to succeed. She went to the prestigious Bryn Mawr College and graduated with her English degree in 1971. Shortly afterward, she met the smelly counterculture hippie guru, Ira Einhorn. And after... A- <laughs> oh, Thor. I'm sorry. He's, he's getting... I know. He's getting irritated at the other dog. Okay. Okay. <laughs> you tell him, buddy. That's going to be happening throughout this episode. <laughs> sure. Okay, Thor. After a passionate two-week romance, she moved in with him. That's always a good start. Two weeks is long enough. You pretty much moved into my house after two weeks. Yeah, we're happily ever after. Described almost exclusively as a, quote, stormy five-year relationship, end quote. And after a 1977 trip to Europe, Maddox decided to finally end their shitty relationship. Upon returning home, she moved to New York, basically to get away from him. Ira threatened to throw out all of her things or destroy everything, so she returned back to her old apartment. So there's a domestic violence break slash talk I want to have here real quick, because this is super, like, unfortunately, this is a recurring theme that you will hear in a lot of stories of domestic abuse, And I think it's a very, like, crucial time to talk about that stuff. So most of the information I got from the National Center for Domestic Violence, as well as one other website where I got some statistics, and I'm going to put them in the show notes and give you guys a couple of resources, not necessarily for yourselves. If you're in that position, obviously it's for you, but also it's just good to know some of these things on hand, especially if you have a friend or you know someone who might need this information. Abusers reportedly go to extremes to prevent the victim from leaving. In fact, leaving an abuser is the most dangerous time for a victim of domestic violence. One study found in interviews with men who have killed their wives that either threats or separation by their partner or actual separations were most often the precipitating events that led to the murder. In fact, 75% of domestic violence-related homicides occur upon separation, and there is a 75% increase of violence upon separation for at least two years. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. 
During this quarantine, there has been a huge uptick in domestic violence and self-harm cases across the country. For anonymous, confidential help available 24-7, call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE, S-A-F-E, or 1-800-799-7233. People don't know this, but you can also text 911 if it's unsafe for you to talk, or you can call 911 and just remain silent on the line, again, if it's unsafe for you to talk. Dispatchers are actually trained to use a series of taps to communicate with you if you can't talk. So they'll say like one tap is for yes and one Mm. tap is for no. Like, are you safe? And they do this as kind of a test because a lot of 911 calls are pocket dials or misdials by kids or whatever. So sometimes if the line goes totally dead or silent, they do this as a test to see if it's a pocket dial or not. And so if they get responded to in taps, they stay on the line and try to figure out where the call is coming from. Just like in ghost hunting. Oh, my God, shut up. (laughs) Okay, back to the story. Like I said, Holly Maddox went back to their old apartment to get her things and was never seen alive again. Ira Einhorn claimed that he went to take a shower and that Maddox went to the neighborhood co-op to buy tofu and sprouts. Literally, that's what he told cops and never came back. That was September 9th, 1977. Soon after. Ooh, what else would a hippie be doing? I know. Soon after, the Maddox family became nervous. <laughs> it's made so many sounds. Oh, Thor, it's okay. Okay, baby. Soon after, the Maddox family became nervous. Holly's mother's birthday came and went without any correspondence. Holly never went more than two weeks without calling her family, so they contacted the Philadelphia police. Ira was questioned, but he claimed he hadn't seen her since that last day. He also added that they had been having relationship problems and assumed she had just left. Dissatisfied with the investigation, the Maddox family hired two private detectives, both former FBI agents. They uncovered a lead that two female associates of Ira's were asked to help move a steamer trunk and dump it in the Schofield River because it contained top-secret Russian psychic warfare documents. You know, no big deal. He could have just sent them to Alex Jones. (laughs) So they, two chicks, declined, and the family turned this info into the police, and the police were finally interested in the case. In the ensuing 18 months after Holly's disappearance, Ira went on speaking tours, worked with corporations, and generally acted like nothing had happened. That was until Michael Chitwood, a Philadelphia detective, knocked on Ira's door with a warrant in hand on March 28, 1979. He was there on a tip of a foul-smelling brownish liquid seeping down the walls of his downstairs neighbor's apartment and that the steamer trunk, well, it was just sketchy as hell. But, um, yeah, foul-smelling brownish liquid seeping through the fucking walls. Yeah, they were. And and also he refused Mm -hmm. to let the custodian into his apartment Because the neighbors were, like, demanding. They're like, you need to clean out that sketchy dude's apartment. It smells like absolute rotting flesh. And he refused to let anyone in his apartment during that time. Following that scent of decomposing flesh, Chitwood broke two sets of locks to get inside of the steamer trunk. He pushed past the styrofoam and yellowing newspaper pages from September of 1977. So that was a good indication that... What happened. When, when it happened. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And when he did that, he revealed a mummified hand. Chitwood said, quote, well, it looks like we found Holly, to which Ira responded, quote, you found what you found. So the Philadelphia Inquirer's headline the next day read, quote, hippie guru held in trunk slaying. In the article, it was revealed that after 18 months, the mummified remains of a once vivacious and beautiful holly weighed only 37 pounds. I know, isn't that a rough detail? Yes. Ira Einhorn immediately began telling news sources and probably anyone who would listen that it was all CIA or KGB to set him up and discredit him. 
because he knew too much and he claimed that he was a smart man that wouldn't murder his girlfriend and then keep the decomposing body in his house, right? So in early April, his bail was set at only $40,000. We're talking about a first-degree murder charge. Usually, that's remand. How much money was that back then? How much money was that back then? I'm so glad you asked, Kevin. It would be $140,000 today, which that's still not a lot. OJ was not even allowed out. Well, none of us are allowed out now. <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> so again, low even by today's standards, considering inflation. His corporate attorney, former DA Arlen Specter, and he had quite a slew of very high-priced attorneys, the first of which was a former DA, which is a big deal. He got him a pretty sweetheart deal. It's probably because he knew the judges and stuff. At his bail hearing, members of local churches and reputable businesses and academic folks came out and spoke on Ira's behalf. The judge had never seen anything like this, the number of people that were vouching for him. So that's probably why the bail was set where it was set. A rich buddy of his, and there's a lot, so it's hard to keep track of who did what, came in and paid the $4,000 bond. It was only $4,000. It's probably AT&T. Yeah, maybe. And this alleged murder was free to roam until his trial. However... It is important to note that on the opposite side, and and I will say not a lot of publications talk about what other things were said at his trial because I think it's just like, oh, it's just some women saying some stuff. But it's really important to note that the opposite side, the witnesses that spoke against Ira's bail release were former partners of his who came and spoke about his abusive nature. One of the women had to seek medical attention after she tried to end her relationship with him, and he responded by nearly strangling her to death. Another one of Ira's former girlfriends went to the hospital after he broke a glass bottle over her head when she tried to break up with him. What a chill hippie. (laughs) I know, what the fuck? Indicating that he had often reacted violently when he was rejected by women. Yeah, apparently. Yeah. In 1981, a few days before the murder trial, Ira skipped town. From 1981 to 1986, he lived in Dublin, Ireland, where at the time there were no extraditions happening between the two countries because there wasn't, a, there wasn't an extradition agreement. When things started to get hot, and in the documentary, the mugshots one that we watched, it's available on YouTube. It's a really, really great episode. And I'm really excited about the show. I want to keep watching it. And it's got the throat slit scene. I know. It's fucking crazy. So we'll talk about that in just a second. But they actually interviewed the guy who let Ira live with him and his wife, like in the, what do they call it? Like the mother-in-law's house or the granny flat or whatever they call like that little extra space behind their house. Yeah. And he, so the guy, I think his name was like Edward Weir or something. He was a a physics professor, and so he really appreciated that this guy was also a professor himself, and so they had this kind of intellectual academic connection, and he really, really liked Ira. And so he mentioned to Ira, like, hey, my wife and I are going to go to Chicago, and we're going to go visit some family. And Ira got really irritated and agitated and was like, don't talk about me to anyone, because I think he was maybe giving his real name to them. He must have been. He's like, don't look me up. Don't talk about me. Don't, you know, utter a word to anyone, basically. And I'm so, kind of a big deal. <laughs> so immediately, what do they do? They immediately, like... Well, yeah. And they're like, oh, my God, he's a murder suspect for this heinous crime. And a hippie. <laughs> and they were like, what the fuck? And so when they got back, they're like, you have 30 seconds to get your shit out of here. We never want to see you again. So shit started to get hot for him in Ireland. And then extradition stuff started to kind of go through and it became legal to extradite people from Ireland. So he jumped ship and went to mainland Europe. For the next 17 years, or I guess for it's actually a total of 17 years, including Ireland, he lived punishment and job-free abroad as Eugene Mallon and married a Swedish woman named Annika Floden. And she's like super hot too, which is crazy because Holly Maddox was crazy hot too. And, and if you... 
Ira Einhardt is the opposite of hot. It's gonna be big and, and he's stinky. He's a dickhead too. Yeah, big and stinky and a dickhead, and they just flock to him. Yep. So the whole time he was on the lam, the Maddox family was in turmoil. In 1988, Holly's father took his own life, and two years after that, her mother died as well, as of natural causes. But yeah, yeah, yeah sad. Frustrated in their attempts to recapture Einhorn, the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office decided in 1993 to pursue the unusual course of trying him in absentia. 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 Mm-hmm. Sounds like a Megadeth song. So that's Latin for in his absence. In absentia trials are rare and controversial. The accused is denied what are generally considered fundamental rights of Western judicial procedure. The right to testify in their own defense, to confront their accusers and the witnesses against them, and to consult with their counsel. Einhorn was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. The search for Ira Einhorn, headed by Assistant DA Richard D. Benedetto, went on, in June of 1997, Ira was found living in Champagne-Mouton, France, with his Swedish wife and was arrested. However, a French court turned down the request for extradition on the grounds that a trial in absentia violates the European Convention on Human Rights, to which France is a signatory. Einhorn was released after some months in custody, but because he had entered the country illegally, he was required to report weekly to the police. The Pennsylvania Assembly responded to the obstacle by passing a law granting Einhorn a new trial. This new bill was nicknamed the Ira Einhorn Law. In February 1999, a three-judge court in Bordeaux ruled that Einhorn could be extradited, provided that he be granted an equitable trial with a right to appeal and that he not be subject to the death penalty. Yeah, because he didn't have the death penalty in France. Oh, and how did he get all this money all the time? Because remember, he's hiring, like, high-up attorneys. He's got all these appeals. He's being able to do all this legal mumbo-jumbo, which any Joe Schmo off the street... I've never said that before in my life. Any old person couldn't do all of this. Any old any old person would get nabbed and brought back to the U.S. But one, like we've already talked about, he's really smart. Not that smart, but you know what I mean. And then two, he's got weirdly a lot of money. So how does he have all this money? Well, I didn't mention the fact that his wife, Annika, she's super duper rich. Oh. And he's got super rich connected friends including Barbara Bromfman, who thought he was innocent. She's a wealthy Canadian socialite with ties to the Seagram Distillery. And when cornered, she gave up his wife's name, which is how they were able to pin him down in the first place. They said that while he was in Europe, he became friends with all these other like really famous people like Peter Gabriel. And also he became friends with Courtney Love's dad. Well, I think he was CIA. No, Courtney Love's dad was the biographer for The Grateful Dead. I just found that out, like, while I was doing research for this. Isn't that weird? Yeah. Totally weird. CIA. (laughs) Okay. Ira's attorney appealed this ruling, but it was upheld by the French prime minister. When riot police showed up at his house to take him away, in a pathetic and desperate attempt at trying to stall... He slit his throat with a knife. So he slit his own throat with a dull knife. And you can see it on that YouTube mugshots episode. And it's fucking gross. At first, I just thought like, oh, it just bled a lot. And then the second time I watched it, I was like, oh, shit, it's open. And you can like see shit. It's a big old gaper. Yeah. Yeah. it's. I know they said it was like this pathetic attempt at like a suicide or whatever. But it's like. Now, that looked per- pretty serious, but, I mean, it wasn't affecting the way he spoke or anything. He was speaking really clearly. And it was like this blood was gushing out as he was talking. Well, there was actually a lack of blood gushing out. It was like this big open, like, it looked like he got hit in the throat with a hatchet or something. But his shirt was all bloody, but, like, I mean, he had something wrapped around think- before that interview, I think. Like, 
he like invited a French TV station to come and interview him so that he could, you know, say his piece or whatever. And I think it had been a little bit of time. I think things were starting to coagulate at that point. Regardless, he's got uh, this huge open wound on his Which, throat. Yeah. And he's talking. He's, he's giving just, an interview. He's stalling. Yeah. But, it's crazy. Yeah. And that's where at the beginning of the episode, you can get some of his interview there, where he is using big Latin words to basically wag his finger at the you know French prime minister saying, hey, you were supposed to take care of your people. Right. Well, guess what? Well, he might actually be a French citizen because he married. No, he's not. Because his wife Swede. was Swedish. Yeah. I don't even know if he was a French citizen at all. And he was in the country illegally, they said. So it's like, hey, you should take care of, I guess, you know what? We should all take care of each other. I don't know. So the suicide attempt came two hours after French authorities announced Ira lost his appeal to fight his extradition to the U.S. And then finally, after 17 years on the run and 25 years after Holly's murder... Ira Ironhorn finally was put on trial. Oh, and just a side note, in July of 1999, so after he had been found but before he was extradited, a jury in a civil court in Philadelphia awarded $907 million in wrongful death damages to Holly Maddox's family. And I think a lot of times people are like, well, it's a lot of money and all this stuff, just like with OJ, the... Brown family and mm. the Goldman family were quote unquote awarded money on OJ's behalf. But the thing is, is like if they don't have any money, they don't get any of that money. So even though they were awarded nine hundred and seven million dollars, he's he's not going to be able to pay any of that. Yeah, blood from a stone. Yeah, yeah, and we've talked about in the Michael Peterson thing. You know, he was supposed to hand over like thirty million dollars to Caitlin, uh, Kathleen Peterson's daughter. Michael Peterson will never be able to pay Caitlin Atwater any money whatsoever because he doesn't own anything. So a lot of times these civil trials are kind of just this gesture of like this is what her life was worth. It's the same thing with like sentencing. When judges make it a point to be like, you're going to be in jail for 500 years. It's like it's it's a gesture to be like, that's how much all of these lives are worth collectively is 500 years. But no one's going to live for 500 years. Like I was saying, a lot of times they're symbolic or to like let them know your loved one's life is worth $907 million, but they're never going to see the $907 million. Yeah, it's all just a show. It is a show. It's a symbolic gesture, and I think it's nice, but I also think that people think that they've won all this money. I think sometimes it almost has the opposite effect of, like, making people think that, like, these people are money-hungry or something. It's like, dude, that guy is never going to be able to pay shit. It's just a gesture. that's why they should just fucking give the fathers of these victims baseball bats and a little time alone with these fucking people well her dad was dead they should have given it to the next of kins yeah the siblings anyone in the neighborhood street justice d snyder will tell you all about it in his 2001 murder trial einhorn took the stand in his own defense always a bad call (laughs) claiming that maddox was murdered by cia agents who attempted to frame him due to his investigations into the cold war and psychotronics After three hours of deliberation, the jury convicted Ira on October 17, 2002, concluding the month-long trial. Ira was sentenced to a mandatory life term without the possibility of parole. Ira began serving his sentence at SCI Houtsdale. In April of 2016, he was transferred to SCI Laurel Highlands, a minimum security prison that provides care for inmates with health needs. Probably getting better health care than many people in this country today. On April 3rd, so just about two and a half weeks ago, 2020, he died in prison. Coronavirus? You know what? I don't, I doubt it. But I didn't even well, think about any, that. So anyone that dies now, even if like you like got in a car crash or got hit by a falling plane. The official, yeah, coronavirus, yeah. coronavirus. He was transferred four years ago to a place where he could get better health care because he was obviously ailing. So he probably succumbed to his health care issues that started happening four years yeah. earlier. Too much tofu and sprouts. Yeah. 
this is the part that is a little infuriating, but at the same time, maybe is understandable. I don't know the full story, but no one who aided in Ira's fugitivity, I made that word up, was, yeah, was ever charged with anything. And I think it has a lot to do with the fact that all of the people who were helping him when he was on the lam, they were all rich. I think that had they been anybody else or people of color or, you know what I mean? I think that that would be very different. Well, you know, I think the rich class are a bunch of depraved fuck. They get away whatever with whatever they want because they got the money. So that's the story of Ira Einhorn, which we didn't even talk about his kind of strange name. He is often dubbed the unicorn killer because in German, Einhorn means one horn. And the documentary that we watched, the Mugshots one, was talking about how unicorns, he kind of thought of himself as this unicorn, or I don't know if that was his fucking pickup line or what. Like, I got one big long horn yeah, for you. Yeah, check out know? my horn, baby. <laughs> but they dubbed him as a unicorn killer, one, because that's literally what his name sort of means in German. And then two, because they were saying that unicorns are this obviously really beautiful, mystical, wonderful creature that's very kind and friendly. But the moment it doesn't like you or that you upset it in some way, it'll lash out. And it's also this very scary, strong, violent, violent, aggressive character as well. Yeah. So it's like a manic personality. Yeah. Exactly, that there's two sides to a unicorn. Right. One horn, two sides. No one knows the dark sides of unicorns. <laughs> like how we know. Well, she knew, unfortunately. How do you feel? You know, I feel pretty good. I had some glasses of <laughs> I red meant about wine. the case. <laughs> oh. Um, <laughs> I mean, 17 years on the run, that's fairly unheard of. Yeah, I mean, he was able to do it. And what's with... I know we talked about it last week. I feel like I bring up Roman Polanski a lot. Maybe we should, oh, we should do a Roman Polanski episode. We can just call him up. I think he still directs films. Yeah, yeah. It's just crazy to me that it seems like in France, and I know we talked about this last week, I think, it seems like everybody gets away with everything in France. Or there must be. They're more progressive. Yeah, I think that they believe in like rehabilitation and stuff. And they think that our judicial system, which they're not necessarily wrong, they think that our judicial system is fairly archaic and pretty monstrous. And so I think yeah, that they're well, fairly against. But then at the same time, they look they let these fucking horrible people live in the lap of luxury, it seems like, in France to some extent. They've had their time of barbarity and beheadings and guillotinings. And and this is their payback is they're going to let Ira Einhorn and Roman Polanski fucking sip on some fucking cafe and eat some goddamn croissants? That doesn't seem fair. Well, it's not fair. Who do you think rules this world? It's people like that. The Roman Polanskis and Ira Einhorns of the world? A bunch of kid fucking dick suckers. I don't know. (laughs) Rich fuckheads. So hopefully you're not listening to this at work out loud. (laughs) Yeah, and hopefully the rich dick suckers are (laughs) choking on their dicks right now. Just the rich ones. If you're sucking dick... More power, not- <laughs> yeah, suck that dick. More power. But if, but if you're a rich asshole doing that, I don't want to. Choke fuck. on the balls. Yeah. yeah, fuck off. So on that note, you can join our <laughs> Facebook group at True Crime Dumpster, where we post weekly and discuss the episodes and crimes and other related things. You could follow us on Twitter, TC Dumpster, and on Instagram at True Crime Dumpster. You can email us at truecrimedumpster at gmail.com. We also have a website where we post our source info at truecrimedumpster.com. And we're doing a pretty good job of that. I will say this last episode probably used like 15 different source materials, and they're all super interesting. So if you are remotely interested in checking out that documentary or something, Definitely look at our source page or, like I said, it's fairly easy to find on YouTube. So I I highly recommend the episode. You can also listen to our show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, Spotify, Himalaya, pretty much anything at this point. So this week I actually was getting ready to do another episode and I had had it three quarters of the way done. And... And then her Earth Day alarm went off. Oh, shit, it's fucking Earth Day. Yeah, and so we will probably be doing that episode I was working on as a Patreon. So hopefully we can do that this week and get that out as our bonus episode. 
Yeah, everybody got their stimulus checks, so you can just... So for $1 a month, <laughs> you can listen to one extra episode a month. Yeah. Or you I... could buy bread. <laughs> you can't buy bread for a dollar. You can get a but piece of bread. But you can get us for a dollar. Yeah. You can feed <laughs> your cheap. mind. You can feed your ear holes <laughs> with our bullshit. So lastly, rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends about our podcast. I also am putting the call out there to our friends and listeners and our listeners who have become our friends. I would love for someone to write a review. And I'm pretty sure you stay somewhat anonymous. I don't think we have any reviews in there yet. Uh, we have some good ratings and stuff, but we don't have any reviews yet. You could even write in Latin. You could write in Latin. That is true. Put alma mater and habeas corpus. <laughs> Tune in next time where we talk out the trash. We love you. Stay bored and healthy indoors. No, go outside. Okay, stay bored and healthy outdoors. You don't, you don't have to be bored. If you have an exciting mind, you're never bored. Just be like Timothy McVeigh. Oh, wait, actually, don't. He's dead. Um, <laughs> keep smiling and waiting Theodore, for the comment. Theodore Kaczynski is still alive, isn't he? No, babe. What? No. Theodore Kaczynski? I'm pretty sure he's still alive. Are you talking about your dentist? What? Who is my <laughs> dentist? Oh, that's Monzon. <laughs> I'm giving away crucial Theodore information. Theodore Kaczynski. He's still fucking alive. McVeigh isn't. He doesn't look very alive. Look at that fucking picture. <laughs> Holy shit. But he is the quarantine champion of the world, man. Well, he, yeah. Solitary. And also, like, living in a cabin in the woods for, what, like, 10 years? Well, I think solitary confinement is, like, the ultimate social distancing. Yeah, <laughs> uh, hopefully. You know, actually, watching that documentary um, of Ira, mm -hmm. the unicorn killer. I know, it kind of sounds like he kills unicorns. When he got out... Like the like the later uh, like his prison video footage or whatever, mm -hmm. the way he looked, people were talking about how like intense he was with his like, and he kind of like dominated people with his eyes, with his gaze and stuff. He totally his mannerisms and his eyes they totally reminded me of Charles Manson. Oh, totally, absolutely, uh huh. Yeah. Totally. yeah, I mean, for almost two decades, he was able to have other people do all of his bidding for him. He didn't have a job during that time. He couldn't. It's crazy. So anyways, don't be like Theodore Kaczynski or Ira Einhorn, but do have successful quarantining time while still having fun. Yeah. So on that note, we hope you have a great week and we'll see you next week. Bye bye.